Okay, and welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette. Uh, joining me today is Matt Herman, who's the general manager of ESU LLC. So welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, Paul. It's good to be here. Okay. You know, uh, I know Gary Polino at uh, Train Tech has mentioned to me in one of our shows that uh, Gary and I do about the changes at uh, ESU since you came on board, which is all good. How about a little background on just who Matt Herman is? Are you uh, you a model railroader? I am, Paul. Um, my father uh, probably got me into this before I was even born. Uh, my first train ride was uh, on the, the CN6060, the Bolt Nose Betty, uh, from uh, Hamilton up to uh, Toronto or Toronto to Niagara Falls, somewhere in that region. Um, and I, I found pictures of my mother while she was pregnant with me riding that train. So uh, that was that was my first train ride that I know of, and it's just uh, taken a hold ever since then. <laughs> so uh, avid model railroader, avid uh you know, photographer and just railroad enthusiast. So this isn't a job for me. This is more of a lifestyle. I, I more or less eat, sleep, and breathe trains. So. Do you model HO? What's your scale? I do. I uh, I model HO scale. I'm I'm a Canadian rail fan. Uh, my my family was really from the Buffalo area originally. Uh, my father, my mother. And, uh, we would go up to visit over the summers. We would spend a lot of time going over to, to Bayview and, um, you know, in the Hamilton area up to Toronto and standing on Bathurst Street. And, um, that kind of just triggered an interest in, in Canadian railroading for me. And uh, My honeymoon, in fact, we, we rode Amtrak out to the West Coast and then up into Vancouver and rode the, the British Columbia Railroad in the last days of the bud cars there. And, uh, since doing that, I, I really had a, a strong liking for the, the British Columbia Railroad. So that's probably my my uh, my favorite road at the moment. But uh, you know, CN and CP and Ontario Northland and really anything Canadian has a, a strong interest for me. So uh, okay. I I grew up along the, the Delaware and Hudson Railroad in Riverside, Pennsylvania, and uh, you know I have a lot of D&H models as well. My brother is big into D&H, and uh, of course my father was. And, um, you know, so I've, I I call the railroad the uh, Canadian Atlantic Pacific because I'm I'm really trying to uh, to fit in quite a bit of, of real estate. <laughs> I we built a house about a year and a half ago, and uh, in doing so, we designed the basement, and then we found a house that would go on top of it quite literally. So <laughs> you know, ten foot ceilings and multiple levels, and uh, you know, as much as we can fit down there. So, How'd you make the connection that brought you over to ESU? Well, um, as I said, my, my father got me into a lot of it. Um, I can remember being five and six years old and sitting in his little workshop and watching him custom build and custom paint. and uh, That got me into doing the same. I, I was a custom painter for, for quite a while. And, um, I live, of course, in central Pennsylvania, so I'm very close to Bowser Manufacturing. And... Uh, Lee English uh, and his father, Lou English, uh, you know, became very good friends. In fact, I've known Lou English since I was four or five years old going into English's Model Railroad Supply. And, um, you know, they he kind of became a uh, kind of a grandfather figure to me. And 
I uh, got to know his children, Lee and, and uh, Lou Jr., and I was asked to build a Bowser steam engine kit for a good friend of mine, and I went up and got some pointers from, from Lou Sr., and <clears throat> we went all the way through it, and I, I got it all finished, and I took it up to him to show him the finished project, and he showed it to his son, Lee, uh, which turned around and asked me if I'd be willing to become the, the company custom painter, to have people refer to me, and um, that went on for a number of years, and before I knew it, I was uh, spending more and more time up there, and uh, I was hired to do a lot of research and development and uh, photography and uh, started doing all of the artwork for them and uh, eventually became the, the project manager for Bowser. Um, if you're familiar with the executive line up there, that was kind of my baby um, up until the uh, the most recent release of uh, Canadian uh, C630Ms. and. Uh, pretty much everything after that, I, I moonlight with them still, and uh, I consult with them to make sure that the quality is, is kept to where I where I got it to. I had a lot of work to get there, so I want to keep that up. But um, I, as you know, there with the executive line, it started off. We used ESU products, and uh, you know, I was you know, I became pretty good friends with the, the members of the company, and um, even after we had decided to. Switched directions there a little bit. Uh, I still stayed close with the company. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't based on uh, uh, personal feelings or anything. It was just what was best for the company at the time. And, um, even after the fact that we weren't working together, I would still get phone calls once in a while uh, asking, uh, you know, what I felt would be best to do this way or that way, being that it was primarily a German company and they needed to know and understand the American market a little better. So. Um, we'd see each other at train shows and all, and uh, we just stayed friendly. Uh, in the summer of 2010 at the national show, we sat down and had a meeting, and uh, they, my predecessors were ready to retire, and they were looking for someone that had some, some history and some know-how, not only in the market, but of, of trains in North America as a whole. And uh, I, I won't say I jumped at the opportunity. I was shocked at the opportunity that they, they thought so highly of me. I, didn't feel that I deserved to take over a company quite yet, but uh, I'm only 34 years old, so I'm, I'm pretty young in terms of uh, other you know, people out there running big companies. And uh, you know, it was it was an honor, and we we talked about it and prayed about it, and uh, we decided that was the way to go. So, uh, okay, talked to to Lee about it there at Bowser, and and Lee's a, a great guy, and I I didn't leave there because I was unhappy by any means. Uh, it was a little better opportunity for us. We have a quite a large family. We have five children, and uh, you know it was an opportunity to kind of work from home and, and be around our children a little bit more. And um, it just worked out for everybody. So. See, I'm not that familiar with ESU. I mean, I've seen the name. There was something about the website or something told me, okay, this is uh, German based by the URL. Before you came on board, the predecessors did they operate pretty much at arm's length? Did they really have that much of a presence in the U.S. market or England there, or I'm sorry, Europe, their forte and, you know, kind of, oh, by the way, here we are? Well, they, they've been in the States now for about uh, six to eight years total. Um, they've, they've been in business making sound decoders for about 15 years or, or a few years more in, in other aspects of the, uh, the electronics uh, four model trains, but they they did come to the states about. You know, I, I will we'll round the number off. Say it was about seven years ago, and they were one of the first companies that were 
giving the opportunity and the availability to program your own sounds into sound decoders. So when they first came here, they, they came with a bang. I mean, they were the cat's meow there for a little while because of the ability and what could be done with the decoders. The sounds were very good. Um, and at the time, you know, DCC wasn't, I wouldn't say in its infancy, but, but sound in, in DCC was something that was somewhat new. It, it wasn't something that, uh, it wasn't anywhere like what we have today where, um, you know, 60 to, to 65% or higher of OEM-produced locomotives come with sound now. At that point, we were looking in terms of maybe 30%. And, you know, the uh, that it was almost a niche at that time. And, you know, there were other competitors here that were starting to do some of the same things. But, um, you know, we were one of the first to really come up with this type of a method. Now, at that point, unfortunately, my predecessors weren't trained people. Now, they were Americans, and they... Uh, um, they were running the company on, you know, in, on stateside here, but in Europe, sound had been taking off and, uh, you know, was getting quite large. In fact, uh, you know, to this day, uh, ESU is probably the largest sound manufacturer for model railroading in the world uh, in terms of, you know, who they provide for OEM-wise and, um, you know, number of products that, that end up getting sound. But, the European market is quite a bit different than the North American market. Trains are, are so much more of a, a way of life over there in, in, in terms of, of riding and watching and, and all of that. I, I don't know the exact numbers, and I might be somewhat off on this, but it's it's probably in terms of maybe one in a thousand people in Europe are, are model railroaders, where here it might be one in, in 5,000 or one in 10,000 across our population. So it's, it's trains are just so much more of a way of life there that the market's much bigger. Um, as we've we've come to the states, we have worked with a number of companies over the years: uh, uh, Precision Craft and Broadway Limited, uh, Bowser. Um, you know, there have been a couple of trial and errors here and there, but uh, uh, since I've taken over now, we're we're working again with Bowser. We're working with Cato extensively. Uh, we're working with River Point Station, who's creating a, an FL9 here shortly. Um, we've been working with uh, True Line Trains and Rapido. Um, you know, we've we're really starting to get a hold and, and a, a good foothold in the market here. And that product recognition starting to get around. Our, our end user sales are, are rising exponentially. So, uh, and, a, and a lot's changed in the decoders to cause that. And we'll get into that for you know in just a little bit. But um, you know the uh, ESU as a whole in the states, you know, is growing. It, it is something that uh, you know there were some downfalls that we had in terms of uh, a little bit of a lack of advertising. Um, you know, the uh, my predecessors again, just they weren't trained people, so they had a hard time knowing how to push the product. What what needed to be, uh, I don't want to say corrected, but what needed to be made better to stay ahead of the competition. Uh, you know get to more shows and get the word out to the public and you know they weren't using the product so they didn't really know you know it just wasn't their interest so it was difficult for them to, to really know how to take the, the company and what direction to go to, to just continue to be at the top so um, so there was a little bit of a you know a little bit of a backslide I would say or, or I wouldn't even say it was a slide backward as much as it just wasn't a slide forward as much as it should have been 
Um, a lot of the other companies did catch up with some of their technologies, especially in terms of sound. You know, there's, there's some companies out there that are doing just some excellent recordings right now, and you know, their, their products are, are, are great products. So, uh, and not that ours was any lesser of a product, it was just a matter of it was a little bit different. And I think that I know myself, we, as model railroaders, we like to, we know our products. We know North American trains, and a lot of times we don't know the European side of things or why things are done a certain way. Um, in my own model railroading, when I was going to train shows just as a buyer, not necessarily as, a, as someone who would display, but just in my own interest, if I would see a, a European booth with European trains, that didn't interest me at all, and I would walk by. And I think that was part of the downfall that we had as uh, as going to shows. You know, they had trains, but they were a lot of times European trains, so um, it didn't pique a lot of interest. And, you know, those are some of the things that I've definitely changed in the last few years. And being that I am a model railroader myself, I have lots of North American trains to you know to install sound in and take the shows and and do mm-hmm. things in a North American way with our sounds and with our decoders. So. Um, you know, that's kind of the push that we're putting on at the moment here. Well, that, that's true. Again, been in a hobby since the early 70s, and in all that time, I have known one man who modeled German prototype. And needless to say, he was he was marked right. and heavily invested in it. It goes right to your point. If your predecessors took European-based product to a, to a show, unless they ran into Bill, there <laughs> probably weren't a lot of people asking for that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And in a different market, yeah, that would go over great. And like I said, in the, in the European market, we've got a huge foothold. Um, you know, we're, we're known as, you know, the very best sound decoders and the very best command stations. And we were creating command stations for other companies, including Markland. You know, the language, uh, that the Markland command station uses, that was our design. And, you know, that, that's a big deal over there. You know, electronics, you know, German engineering, as they call it, uh, you know, that's, uh, what I'm finding is that in a lot of ways, the, the European market is a little bit ahead of us. And that might be because of the number of people that are in the hobby over there. But um, we usually are finding ourselves on the catch-up side, um, you know, in terms of what we use for different products, you know, miniature LEDs and, you know, lighting things up and smoke units and working pantographs. And, you know, in the States, that's something that, you know, I wouldn't say brand new, but it's not something that's used a lot. In Europe, they've been doing things like that for years, uh, using servo motors for switch machines. Uh, you know, just just all these little things that the electronics and you know motion control is not something that's new over there by any means. And um, you know, U.S. Uh, the market doesn't always take kindly to some of that because we do get kind of stuck in our ways. But um, you know, that's we're actually producing our own locomotives in Europe right now, ESU brand locomotives. And one of the reasons that we're doing that is to show the advancements in technology that we have. Um, again, you know, just, just for instance, you know, working pantographs, um, not only do ours go up and down, but when they hit the wire, they'll bounce just like a real wire does. You know, that servo that runs that pantograph will move back and forth to, to raise and lower that pantograph as the wire bounces with it, just like in real life. Um, you know, of course, the smoke and, and all of that, that's, that's nothing new. Um, operating couplers or something that's been done in Europe for years. Uh, you know, just now in North America, some, some companies are starting to get into that a little bit. Um, you know, steam engines that, 
not only blow smoke, uh, you know, out of the stack, but out of the pistons as well as they do blow-offs. And, oh, really? There's things that are that are just so far beyond what we're doing here in the States. Uh, being able to sense going over a frog in the track and, and getting the proper sounds for that, uh, going around curves and uh, knowing that you're in the curve, uh, you know, XYZ motion controllers like what are used in uh, Wii games and, and things like that. Uh, it's just the advancements, it's quite there. Now, is that far and above what we're looking for here at the moment? Maybe. Um, and, you know, we we have those advancements. It doesn't mean we have to use them here. And, you know, we'll we'll definitely cater to, uh, you know, to the, to the market and, and what they're looking for right now in, in terms of electronics and advancements. But, um, you know, knowing, though, that uh, not only can we do, the, you know, what you're looking for, but probably an awful lot more, you know, it's it can be a good thing. It shows people that yeah, they can have some confidence in us because we're not going anywhere. We've been around a long time, and um, you know we're going to continue to advance and, and try to be at the top of our game and the top of the market in those advancements. So. Well, and it, I would think from a, a business strategy, even you know whether it's near term or uh, longer term perspective, just knowing that you've got the intellectual properties that those technologies, you know, represent as this market evolves and you're already in a good position to to uh, meet the, uh, you know, that want that evolves out there. Right. That's, right. that's pretty strong. Uh, what are, you know, have you set any objectives for the company, say, over the next 12, 18 months, what you want to see happen within the ESU brand out there in the market? Well, there definitely has been, um, and I'm constantly looking towards the future to, to see, you know, what can be changed, what can be made better, um, what are we doing well and we want to continue with. Um, and, and some of those things include, well, you know, just to, to kind of back up just a second, you know, mm-hmm. what I was saying about, uh, you know, bringing European trains to train shows and things like that, again, they didn't really know much better than to do that, you know, they, I think there was a point where, you know, trains are trains, you know, so if, if it's a train, people are going to like it and they're going to understand how we're using it. One of the things that I try to do as a North American modeler is, you know, again, I, I took over in 2010, and at that point, I've been re-recording all of our sounds. I've been changing our software so that it works more uh, to a North American style uh, in terms of, um you know the, the function buttons on what we're used to here, and uh, in terms of how the sounds work, um, you know dynamic brakes that uh, you know don't just play a sound over top of the prime mover, but actually drop the prime mover down to idle and then go into dynamic brake mode and um, coasting modes that uh, you know I, I look and one of the things that we're really trying to push for. And it's something that we've already started doing still, but I want to continue over the next 12 to 18 months, is to make our prototype decoders as prototypical as as possible. Um, you know, not just being a sound that you can say, hey, that sounds like a train, or, yeah, that, that moves back and forth like a train would. But we want it to be as realistic as, as the, the real thing. Not so complicated that nobody knows how to use it, but very, very realistic and have those features available for those that, that do want to run their trains like the real railroad does. Um, you know, dynamic brakes that, again, not only 
does those sounds play properly? Uh, you know, when, when you know during the right motion of the prime mover, but actually slow the engine down like dynamic brakes would. Um, you know, they change the acceleration and deceleration rates when they're involved. Um, are manual notching. Uh, not only is it manual notching and automatic notching, depending on how the user wants it to work, but um, our manual notching is such that you can go back and forth on the fly. Um, you will be automatic notching to turn your throttle back and forth uh, with the sound increasing and decreasing with your throttle, or you can press F9 or F10 to engage manual notching, and then it'll it'll decouple itself from automatic notching run your train separately so that your motion is separate from your audio, your audio being controlled by the function buttons on the throttle and your motion being controlled with your throttle itself. Um, and then when you take that all the way down to idle and you bring the, the motion all the way to a stop, it'll re-engage automatic notching again. So no more trying to program on the main as you're running your trains to go back and forth between the two. And, uh, we're, I'm, being that I am a model railroader myself, I'm a layout junkie. I love seeing how other people are doing things. I love running trains. My father was a chief mechanical officer of a railroad, so I've been around it my entire life. So I'm trying to take my knowledge, my experience, and my likes and dislikes into the decoders themselves and to make things run the way that North American trains run. And we have European decoders that run the way European engines run because there is a difference. Diesel hydraulics are different from diesel electrics. Electrics are different from diesels. And we try to take all of that into account. Um, And and that's not even getting into the fact that you can program all the sounds into those decoders. And, and, and again, that's something that we'll touch on in a few minutes. But, you know, the sound side of it that you can go in and, and program to be very particular to the engines that you're modeling. I've, I've kind of coined a, a new slogan since I've taken over, and it's that sound super detailed. Um, you know, I've, I've been talking a lot about the motion control and, and how our decoders work, but, uh, you know, the sound side of it is, is just as important, if not sometimes a little bit more. Um, and, and we'll talk about the differences in some of our decoders in just a second. Okay. Uh, you mentioned a couple names a while ago. Who are the uh, people, the OEMs, that if I buy their sound locomotive or sound product that I'll see an ESU in it? Who are those people? Sure. The the companies that we've we started working with since I've taken over are Cato, and they've been providing our decoders in uh, for about a year and a half now. Uh, Trueline Trains uh, just released uh, an MP40. Um, which is a, a Go engine. Uh, they're getting ready to release an MP36 um, in multiple you know, commuter uh, agency uh, railroad names. Um, they'll, they'll be out with our decoders in it. Uh, we've just signed an agreement with Bowser, so starting with the C636, um, all of their engines will contain ESU products. Um, we're working with River Point Station. River Point Station is known for their vehicle line, but they're starting into the locomotive manufacturing as well. Um, they have an FL9 that uh, is, is coming to the market um, hopefully later this year. Uh, that'll have our sounds in it as well, including uh, not just the diesel sounds on that, but also the electric sounds and pneumatic sounds that, that come along with the uh, the FL9. Um, the uh, 
we have another uh, couple manufacturers that we've been negotiating with that negotiations are going quite well. I'm, I'm not at liberty to say who they are quite yet, but uh, okay. hopefully within the next month or two we'll be uh, we'll be expanding that list uh, quite a bit. So uh, okay. we'll let you know. I had I thought I had read somewhere that uh, the U.S. product out of the uh, reborn River Rossi was also ESU. You're absolutely correct. Um, River Rossi uh, was uh, basically Hornby America now. Um, mm -hmm. Hornby is one of our largest uh, OEMs that we deal with. Um, now most of the product that goes into Hornby locomotives uh, goes into the European market, but now that Hornby owns River Rossi, they have been uh, providing ESU decoders into those as well. Um, the Big Boy, uh, the Allegheny, uh, there's some other engines that are coming out shortly that will have our decoders in. Now, because Hornby is a European company, my market personally is based on, um, you know, North America as a whole, Australia and uh, mm -hmm. Canada. Um, so, well, North America being, you know, United States and Canada and, and also Australia. So I typically try to take care of manufacturers within those markets personally. And then my counterparts in Germany take care of the rest of the world in terms of providing the OEM sound. Now, Hornby's kind of on the edge now. They do provide North American locomotives you know, out of that River Ossie line, but being that Hornby traditionally is the European company, my, my counterparts in Germany have been taking care of, of uh, the River Ossie decoders. So um, it is a, an ESU decoder, though, so any service, anything that would need done on that side of it would come through me. So, um, you know, so that, that Hornby's kind of... Uh, Kind of a little bit different. That's why I didn't really mention them because I don't deal with them directly. But the, the ones that I mentioned are ones that I deal with. But that might be changing too. We've actually had some conversations about, uh, you know, uh, ESU LLC here in the states uh, taking care of Hornby USA. So we'll see how that pans out. Uh, uh, it's, it's really up to Hornby and what their decision is. It, it really it won't make any difference in terms of performance or quality or, or customer service. It's, it's really just an internal decision. So. Okay. Because I had, uh, I don't know, last fall, I guess, when the new release came out, I bought an Allegheny. Okay, yes. I bought it without sound because the dealer couldn't tell me whose sound it was. When I said, okay. Well, yeah. And I said, well, okay, let me just bring it in, you know, silent, and I'll uh, address that later on, you know, when I look at uh, smoke and all that other kind of stuff. So if I – but you bring up an interesting point. So if I went to my dealer and said, let's put an ESU in it, it's going to be uh, an ESU LLC unit, obviously, right? Yeah, that would come through me now. The nice thing about, uh, you know, though we are run somewhat as separate companies between ESU and, and ESU LLC, um, all the work that we do on the electronics and the sounds, that's all done together. Um, really, the only difference is who supplies product to what part of the country, or what part of the world, rather. Um, again, if my markets are North America and Australia. Their markets are, are typically the rest of the world. Uh, there are some other importers in other countries, and you know, in England and, and all that, uh, uh, take care of you know, smaller markets there. But uh, I am a ESU employee. Um, the other importers are hobby shops or whatever that just buy ESU products. So 
um, you know, they're you know, it's it's ESU and, and ESU LLC. So, um, but yes, if you were to buy a decoder uh, through your dealer, it would come through me. And and the nice thing about that is, though that decoder originally, the sound decoder that would have been in the factory installed sound Allegheny. Um, though that was produced in Germany and supplied from the Germans, um, that goes onto our website for that product number, and I can download that and, and install the exact same sound as would have been produced for the, the production locomotives. Which is a, an interesting question then that, that follows, uh, and it, it doesn't make any difference whether it's, I guess, a TSU or any of the competitors because there are no live big boys, was the other one you mentioned, and as far as I know, there's only one preserved uh, Allegheny, and that's in uh, over on the East Coast. So how do you guys get creative in creating a sound file for a locomotive that you don't have the convenience of going out and recording live? How do you go about it? There's a couple of different ways that we do that. Um, a lot of times we'll try to get as many accurate recordings that we can of, of locomotives that just aren't in service anymore. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, one that you know I can I can bring up fairly easily is uh, the U50. Uh, the U50 uses uh, two prime movers in it, similar to like a DD40X. Uh, the prime movers are exactly the same as in a U25. Um, in order to make a sound for a U50 these days, there's really only two ways that it can be done. Uh, one of which would be to find accurate, high-quality recordings and try to pull different sounds out of those recordings and, and produce a decoder from that. That can be extremely challenging because, uh, you know, when we're doing a, an actual recording of a locomotive, we know what notch it's in. Um, we are trying to record, and this is just to go off on a tangent here for a second, uh, because sure. we're talking about recording. One of the things you had asked that I'm, I'm trying to do differently over the next 12 to 18 months uh, along with, uh, you know, pull more manufacturers in and uh, get the, the word out a little more, would be to change a lot of our recordings so that they're recorded under load. Uh, there's quite a difference in sound between an engine that's idle and just running through its notches sitting still mm -hmm. than one that is, you know, pulling a heavy train and, and running through its notches that way. Um, you know, we uh, we recently recorded a, a Jivo engine, and the Jivo, um, it... It sounds so different when it's not under load that it's it's uh, um, it doesn't even sound like the same engine. So when we did that recording, I I sent it off and uh, we didn't do it under load. We weren't able to move the engine. We had a little trouble getting those recordings under load. So we thought, well, we'll get what we can, do the edits, and see what happens. And um, we did that. We we edited it out as best that we could to get the best quality sound that we could out of that recording, and I wasn't happy with it. Um, it, it didn't have the chug that it, I really felt that it should, being trackside, um, and I refused to put it out on the market because of that. Now, Jeevo is a hard engine to record because of being first-class railroads. A lot of times they don't like to put them out of service for a couple hours for us to do that. So um, it was a double-edged sword because... I didn't want to put out an inferior sound, but yet it is a sound that's going to be hard to get again. So um, I, I had to make the decision to, to hold that back. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a Jivo sound available at the moment because of it, though 
Um, I have actually just made arrangements recently to do another recording, but um, if I had to put that out as it was, it wouldn't have been as good as some of our competitor sounds, and it would have it would have been kind of a bad situation. So those are some of the day-to-day decisions that, that have to be made in order to keep the business rising. And, uh, I'm sure people are frustrated that it's not available yet, but I would rather that than have it out there and, and it just be wrong and people look at the sound and hear those sounds and think, oh, they don't really know what they're doing. Um, so it's it's a little challenging sometimes. But back to the, the U50 and how we get those recordings, if we don't know you know, where things are not, or maybe we can't find a, a recording that's quite good enough, um, we could go out and we could record a U25 and combine those prime movers, uh, play one over top of the other a couple of different ways. We can do that in our actual editing, um, which sometimes can be good, sometimes, uh, you know, it's not so good because it, when it's done in the editing side, um, you're limited to what that final uh, cut sounds like. Uh, if it's done in the decoder, which we have the ability to actually play two prime movers at the same time in all of our decoders, not only in diesel but in steam. So we could do the same thing in an articulated sound. You could actually uh, you know, play them offset to get your cadence proper and, and all that. Um, but on the, on the diesel side, we can mix it as well so that you can start one prime mover, then start the other prime mover, and then at that point they would be joined and, and would run together as one unit. Um, offsetting the sounds if necessary, and uh, you know that's all adjustable with inside the decoder and in our program to do so. Uh, but that's the long and short of how we do it. Uh, you know, the actual sound editing isn't something that I do. Um, I let that be done by our sound technician in Germany, who is very, very good. Um, I've been involved with a, a couple of companies over the years here. And, I have to say he is he's definitely one of the best sound editors in the world at the moment uh, when it comes to trained sounds, at least. Um, most of the uh, the sound editors out there are not trained enthusiasts. They're musicians, and that's where they get their ear for the, you know how those sounds get edited. Um, it's, it's not just how the sound is played. It's actually the quality of the recording and how those sounds mix and match. You know, when you're playing a horn, that sound is is actually at least three parts. Ours are actually more than that because we try to make them a little more playable. But you have a, a loop that's in the middle, and then you have an initial wave and an exit wave. And that initial wave is is what you hear when you're first starting to to pull the the rope to blow the whistle or the horn. It's just that startup sound of that horn. And then the loop would be as you're holding the button in that would keep playing over and over again. And then you have your exit wave, which is the let off of that horn as it fades out. Um, and it really doesn't matter who you're you're talking to in terms of, of decoder manufacturers with sound. That's pretty much the same way it's done. Now there can be some variations within that, and you know each individual decoder can play that sound a little different. Um, with our software, we can go in and, and edit how that horn is played. You know, we could. We could end it abruptly. Um, we actually have two initial waves. We have a long initial wave and we have a short initial wave. And that's so if we want to end that sound a little sooner, that's, that whole initial wave doesn't have to play. We only have to play the first part of that and then it can end. And that gives us a very short toot on the whistle um, or the horn or whatever it might be. So 
there's a there's a lot of thought that goes into it and a lot of experience that, that we've had to, to use to come up with our current methods. And, uh, they seem to be working pretty well. You mentioned the uh, the U-50s, but I guess that same type of uh, overlay of, of sound files and maybe a, uh, a phase shift or so forth, well, that would also apply towards E-units. E-units, uh, Baldwin's that had uh, dual prime movers, um, you know, it's, it's not an uncommon thing. So, yeah, that's... Uh, something that can be used in a lot of diesels these days. Okay. And I I certainly applaud your your decision not to come out with your Jivo unit because of not being able to have it under load because I've noticed as they test units at the, uh, the hobby shop here and I've listened to sounds and I go, well, this is just an unloaded uh, prime mover just going through the notches. You know, doesn't have that labored quality. Uh, and, and typically, how we do that in recording, you know, if, if possible, and we can get on a heavy drag freight, you know, that's that's definitely our first choice. But there's other mm-hmm. ways around it. Um, some engines do do self-load tests, and, and you can kind of cheat it by doing that and, and still have the engine stationary. But uh, the problem with that is a lot of times, in order to do that, they run against the dynamic brakes and. Then you get dynamic brake fan sounds and, and other things that interfere with the actual prime mover sounds. Um, when we do our recordings, you know, the microphones that are used these days will pick up every little sound, every bird that tweets, every car door that shuts. So it can be a little challenging at times. You want to make sure you're in a very, very quiet area. Um, but one of the ways that we we try to get around a little bit of that is to you know get out in the main line somewhere where it's nice and quiet um, you know, if, if there's more than one engine on the train, we try to, to shut the other engines down and just isolate them so that uh, they're not making any other ambient sounds. Um, and we'll, we'll put the brakes on the train. Uh, we'll actually pull against the train. That way we don't really need to have, you know, 50 or 60 cars. We can do it with three or four with some good train brake. And um, the, the goal is to try to go as slow as possible and the highest notch as possible. Uh, you know, again, you, you do get other sounds like wind noise and, and things like that if you're going fast. Um, you also get a lot of, uh, you can get some track noise and squeal and, and things that you want to try to stay away from in your initial recordings. Those can all be ambient function sounds later on, and we try to record those separately. But um, we do try to record every individual sound separately. Um, you know, you want to record your brake cylinders going in and out. If it's got a reverser or if it's a steam engine, you, you hear the reverse unit going. Uh, you get, want to get that. Um, mm-hmm. We just did a sound for an Alco uh, 250, uh, yeah, 251 16-cylinder, and those engines had both air start and they had electric start. The electric start's not that big of a deal. That can be started uh, from inside the engine. The air start has to be started from outside the engine, and you have to go into the car body in order to do that. And the only way to get into that car body is to open the doors. So when we did those recordings for that air start, I even included the doors opening on the on the car body. Um, you know, as we're doing the recordings anymore, you know, when you shut an engine down, um, in almost every case, uh, they turn, put the handbrake on. Sometimes they're ratchet type handbrakes, sometimes they're wheel type handbrakes, but 
those are recordings that we have um, you know that we try to incorporate into our decoders because they're they're sounds that are that are there on a real locomotive. Maybe not everybody wants to use them all the time, but we want to make them available for those that, that do. Okay. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the capabilities uh, or and some of your specific uh, decoders. We had a, a decoder line uh, called the 3.5 decoders, and that's what we came to the United States with. Uh, the 3.5 decoder um, was a, a tried-and-true uh, DCC and sound decoder. Um, I was in the Marine Corps, and when I was there, uh, we flew. I was a helicopter crew chief, and uh, we had a couple pretty old helicopters there. One being the uh, you know the Huey you know type of, uh, helicopter. The other was a twin rotored helicopter, similar to a Chinook. Ours were a, a CH-46, where a Chinook was a CH-47, and that's that's what I flew on. And they were Vietnam era helicopters. And everything that could go wrong with those helicopters had gone wrong. <laughs> you know? So we knew what the fixes were on them. So they were considered some of the safest helicopters you know, in the military. Uh, they also said that every one of them leaked, and if it didn't leak, it just meant it was out of fluid, but that was a separate subject. <laughs> so, but the, the 3.5 decoder was similar to that helicopter. It, it was the tried and true. It had been out there a long time. And anything that could go wrong with that decoder has gone wrong with it. And we've found those, and we've gone through, and we've upgraded and fixed the firmware and software and uh, all kinds of stuff to make sure that that decoder was very, very reliable. Um, the downside of that was, you know, that decoder was what it was. Uh, it was very programmable in the sense that you could put your own sounds on it. You could add, uh, you could replace horns and bells and uh, prime mover sounds if you wanted to with other ones. You could mix and match from, um, you know, steam engine sounds typically are, are universal, whether it's an American steam engine or a German steam engine, you know, the pistons and cylinders and things like that, you know, they are similar. I mean, obviously there are some differences within sizes and three-cylinder and two-cylinder and all that, but a lot of those sounds can be very, very similar. So you could take some of those sounds, if you liked it, combine it with American whistles. Uh, of course, we had American steam sounds as well, but there was just a lot that could be done with that decoder. Um, we have our own software in order to be able to write that. But the, the problem, if you want to call it a problem, with the 3.5 was it got to the end of its capabilities. We had done everything with it that the decoder electronics were capable of doing, especially in terms of outputs, uh, you know, auxiliary outputs, lighting features, and things like that. So we recently came out with the version 4 decoders. It is very, very similar in terms of what the 3.5 used to be able to do. We've taken all of that technology, and we've upgraded it with a new piece of hardware, a new decoder body itself. Um, it's a little bit smaller. It's got six outputs on it instead of four. Um, it's got a lot more memory in it, um, you know, built-in capacitance. Uh, and some of the things that we found over the years that people didn't like about the uh, 3.5, things that couldn't be changed, we've instilled those into the 4.0. So it is a very universal decoder. There's just tons that can be done with it. And it's available multiple sizes. Uh, we have a micro 4.0. Uh, we have, you know, which would fit into a narrow hood unit of an N-scale engine. 
Um, you know, we have a, our typical HO 4.0, which is our best-selling decoder. Uh, we have an XL decoder, uh, which is really designed for the number one gauge or, or G gauge locomotives, the aristocrats, the LGBs. Um, the, although it is used quite heavily in O-scale locomotives, uh, especially steam and, and uh, cow unit diesels. It's a little a little bit wider than what would fit into an O-scale diesel, narrow hood unit diesel. Uh, but we've been uh, discussing coming out with an O-scale version, especially size-wise. Um, we do have uh, what we call our low pilot uh, decoders as well available in the 4.0, and uh, they're available in all of those sizes as well except for that in most cases the load pilots are a little bit smaller. They don't have to have the sound components. Um, the the 3.5 decoders were a great decoder. The One of the downfalls that people have come to dislike uh, was the 100-ohm speaker. Uh, we used that extensively at the beginning. Um, it was a very good speaker in terms of quality. It gave great sound, but it didn't give a lot of volume. Um, that was one of the, the things that people didn't like. Uh, the other issue was that it uh, wasn't as available to find. Uh, obviously, we sold them, but uh, not every, you know the the way the sound industry went in North America, um, the eight ohm speaker became much more popular. So, um, just the, the popularity as a whole kind of shied people away from the hundred ohm speakers. So that's something that's changed within the 4.0. We now use an 8-ohm speaker or a 4-ohm speaker. They're designed for 4. Uh, 4 does give you a little bit better volume. Um, we've got a, a little different power management system than some of the decoders out there, so even though it does have a 4-ohm speaker um, you know, or can be used with a 4-ohm speaker, there's no limited restrictions in terms of needing any type of booster or anything along those lines to do any programming. So. Um, we also don't need any heat sinks with our decoders because our, our power management is a little different than some of our competitors. And that's a, in my view, that's a big advantage because we have the ability to do a, a much smaller decoder that doesn't require any heat sink that, that takes up quite a bit of size and you know, a little bit of maintenance in order to get that into a location that, uh, you know, may not otherwise fit. So, um, the other thing in terms of the 100 ohm speaker that, uh, you know, it, I, I kind of find amusing uh, these days because I can remember when the, the ESU brand first came to the States and, um, you know, everybody at that point, because of the 100 ohm being a little softer in volume, um, you know, it wasn't loud enough for a lot of people. And you remember these was this was the time when uh, sound was still fairly new and people only had two or three locomotives that had sound. And if they put all that expense out to put sound into their engines, it they wanted it to sound as loud as the real thing. <laughs> so that 100-ohm speaker not being as loud as some of the eights that are out there now, uh, it was a little bit of a downfall. Uh, nowadays, uh, people have many locomotives with sound on their layouts. They're finding that if they're all that loud, they all kind of run into sound-wise, and uh, you can't distinguish one from the other in many cases. So many people are turning their volumes down now uh, to be, you know, a little more realistic. I think sometimes people forget that, uh, you know, the the sound it should be scaled down one eighty seventh of the actual volume as well. So, um, you know, it, that can be at scale, including uh, or included with the uh, the model itself. 
So now we're finding that the volume that wasn't quite loud enough before is actually what people are going to. <laughs> so it's funny how things have come around a little bit. But it's still nice to be able to have the 4 and the 8-ohm speakers with the new decoders, though, because they are so much more available. Um, there are some aftermarket companies like... Uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a couple of them out there. Railmaster Hobbies is one that is well-known in the industry for creating some, some great speakers, some high bass speakers. And, uh, I'll put a little plug in there because he's a great dealer of mine. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Gary Paulino, I know he's carrying a number of speakers up there as well, uh, you know, from different manufacturers. And if you're looking for a couple dealers, uh, you know, that's something that uh, you know, I, I know most manufacturers have on their website is a list of their dealers. And, uh, there's there's quite a few good ones out there. I, you know, I can honestly say that uh, there's not too many dealers that I deal with that uh, give me any trouble. They're all very very helpful, and you know, I try to be reciprocal of that because you know, support your dealers out there. They, uh, you know, they're out there to help you, uh, you know, get what you want. So uh, you know, give them the the courtesy of uh, you know spending some money with them. You know, a lot of them have a lot of overhead to deal with. You know, once they go out, uh, you know, it makes it harder and harder for this hobby to survive. So that's something I believe in highly is giving your dealers the support that they need. Like a 4.0, obviously DCC, but on the sound side, does it have any capabilities for just DC? It does, yeah. All of our decoders are dual-mode decoders, um, which means that, you know, they will work on a DC layout, analog layout. Um, we There are some companies out there that make controllers that are universal. MRC makes a nice uh, DC controller that allows you to, uh, to control any DCC engine on those tracks. Um, if you're using our decoders on a DC layout, just like anything else, uh, you're not going to have much control over the ambient sounds um, other than the prime mover going up and down. Like the other decoders that are out there, you need some other type of controller to get to those those ambient sounds. So uh, one thing I do recommend to people is if you want to go sound, go DCC. And I know that can be a huge expense in some cases to, to you know equip your entire fleet, but once you see the capability of what can be done with DCC over the limited capabilities of analog, it, it does become quickly worth it. Um, um, you know, and it, it can be done gradually. It doesn't have to be done overnight. And I've seen a lot of converted layouts that still have toggle switches to go back and forth between DCC and, and DC. Um, but you know, if you're going to go sound, you know, eventually you should go DCC. It just it opens up a whole new world of capabilities. So, we, we were talking about the 4.0 decoders. I'd, I'd like to kind of go back on a, a little bit of a tangent with that. Okay. We, our, our 4.0s are, are just one of the new sound decoders that we have. And the 4.0 is, is great for the customer that's looking to uh, super detail their sound, to take an engine. Uh, you know, this is for the, uh, the prototype modeler who's going to model a specific engine number uh, maybe uh, you know it's beat pretty hard, and they want to go out and they want to put the actual sound from that engine into their decoder. Uh, maybe it's got a, a three-chime horn and a, a bird built a nest in one of the chimes or something, so it's got kind of a sick horn. You can do that. You can take your own recordings and put that right into the decoder. So it's it's truly that sound engine or that sound from that particular engine, and um, you know everybody. They super detail the outside of the model, you know, exquisitely, you know, down to the last rivet and detail. But 
they tend to forget that you know a lot of engines sound a little different from road number to road number sometimes not not just uh it's not just a matter of well one five sixty seven is going to work for every f unit out there you know that's that's not always the case um you know and it's it's not just a matter of a five sixty seven you know we try to get very very specific within having you know twelve cylinder five sixty seven sixteen cylinder five sixty sevens five sixty sevens with a turbo um yeah, you know, and that's that's all across the board. That's that doesn't matter whether it's diesel, steam, or whatever. But because our that decoder is so programmable, it, it does come with a little bit of a hefty price tag of one hundred and fifty nine ninety nine, um, and that's that kind of scare people away a little bit. But really, what you're paying for is that ability to program. So if you're looking for something that you know may have most of the features that you're looking for, um, or in a lot of cases will have all the features that are needed. Uh, we also have a select decoder, uh, a select brand of decoder. And in terms of size and shape, it comes on the same hardware. We use the same actual decoder for the select programming or the 4.0 programming. But the, the select programming that was made for the North American market, it was made to compete uh, here in the States. Um, what we have found is that we just don't really have a lot of competition overseas. So... Um, and that's one of the reasons that the, the prices have been able to stay high on that side of it. Um, but, you know, the, the programming and the, the design of how that decoder software works, um, it, it takes a lot of work. I mean, we've been building the new 4.0 software for three or four years now. It's still not quite complete. So, I mean, there's a lot of time and a lot of effort that goes into that. And really, that's where a lot of the cost of the decoders go into. But... The select decoder on the flip side of that is it's a little simpler in terms of, of what it does. It, you cannot load your own recordings into it, but it is a programmable decoder. You can take one of our pre-made profiles and exchange that. You can turn a diesel into a steam, um, vice versa. I mean, you can turn a GE into an EMD. Uh, that decoder comes with 16 different horns on it, comes with two different bells, it comes with two different brake wheels. Um, comes with up to four different prime movers already on it, and that all can be changed with one CV going back and forth. So um, it, it's a much simpler decoder for end users to use, but it still has all of the features of the 4.0. It still has the you know all the same motor control. It still has all of the same uh, function mapping, uh, lighting effects. Um, all of those things are still there. Really, the main thing that you lose is the ability to program your own sounds into the decoder. And at, at $99 list price, it uh, you know it, it becomes a uh, you know a viable uh, solution for some of the competition that's on the market. Uh, you know, we uh, we have a micro select as well. Again, that's $99 uh, for a four-function output uh, select that'll fit right into a narrowhood unit diesel and N scale. Um, we, uh, we're coming out with, uh, well, I'm, I'm trying to convince the powers that be to come out with an O-scale select as well, uh, when we go that road. So there's, there's quite a bit of variability and, and, uh, and options there. Uh, what we're using in the OEM locomotives in North America is the select decoder, um, and it's not a dumbed down version. It's exactly the same as, as what's in, you know, the packages you buy it separately. I know some of the decoders on the market don't give you all the features that you would get if you uh, you would buy it separately, you know, but we supply to the manufacturers exactly the same equipment that the end user can buy separately. So, 
Oh, well, that's that's significant. That is significant because, I mean, guys will make the comment at the hobby shop, well, it's, it's not the full function because it, you know, it came from the manufacturer. It wasn't uh, an, the aftermarket version of it. So you're saying on yours, they are one and the same, exactly. full feature. Yes, exactly. All right. Okay. Now, so we've got sound. We've got the Select Series. We've got the 4.0. Uh, are these ready to drop in? They've got the 8-pin uh, plug. Are they ready to go? Is it they are. We, we have a number of different plugs that are available, and the, and the European market's really driven a lot of that. Um, there's a lot of plugs that are available in Europe that aren't available here yet, and that kind of ties mm-hmm. into what I mentioned earlier about sometimes the Europeans being ahead of us in, in some of these situations. Um, right now, the selects are available in three different formats. And, um, the first one uh, is the, the micro select, and that's available with an 8-pin plug. Um, the, the select, what we call the select 6-aux decoder, which is the HO version, uh, that comes right now with an 8-pin plug. And we also have what we call our select direct decoder. Now, the Select Direct Decoder is more like the Atlas style of drop-in board. Um, that's uh, it, it's something that I kind of put into play not too long after I, I came on board because um, I kind of got frustrated looking out at my own collection, trying to come up with what decoder is going to fit. Some things like, uh, let's say, the Atlas RS3, they, those engines don't have uh, the, the room for an 8-pin plug. So we created the Select Direct board to kind of compensate for that a little bit. And it is a, a drop-in style of board, but it's not just for Atlas engines. You know, a lot of the AT-style boards that are out there on the market right now, they'll fit an Atlas engine. They will fit an Atherin Genesis engine. Those The motor mount holes are usually the same. Um, the, I should mention that this is the older Atlas. Uh, within the last few years, they've changed their board size, but um, this is the longer Atlas board. Uh, this will also fit in all of the new Bowser executive line locomotives. It'll fit into the Stewart locomotives that had different motor mounts. Um, it'll fit into Intermountain locomotives. Um, w- basically, what we've done is we've taken that standard design and we've found all the locomotives that are out on the market that have different motor mount locations for that similar style of board, and we put those holes in the appropriate place. So. Rather than having an Atlas board or having an Atherin board or a Bowser board, we have a one-size-fits-all board that, you know, works in just about everything. Um, that board also, again, it's a six-function output board. It also has resistance built in for LEDs. Uh, there's bypass there for that resistance in case you want to use bulbs or, or something else onto that output. Um, so we... We tried to take the best of all the worlds and, and put it all together into one decoder. It's, it's become a pretty successful decoder for us. Um, something else that we're, we're getting ready to, to come out with, I'm, I'm pushing for it. It hasn't been uh, fully approved yet, but something I think will happen is that we're going to include a 9-pin plug um, instead of the 8-pin plug on those decoders. We aren't going to be... Uh, eliminating the 8-pin plug decoder, we're just going to be adding another one that will have a 9-pin plug as well. Uh, the, the problem with the 8-pin plug is that you only have three function outputs available to you. The 9-pin plug, of course, gives you four. Uh, the other nice thing about the 9-pin plug is that in cases like Atherin Genesis engines that may have ditch lights, 
because you have four going out through the plug, you can have flashing ditch lights without doing any hard wiring. Um, there are manufacturers out there that don't have eight pin plugs that do have nine, so um, that's the other reason I want to bring that back. There's a new board that's well, I say it's new. It's actually new to the United States. It's it's been around for quite a while in Europe. Uh, that's called a 21 pin socket. Um, if actually your Allegheny that you mentioned most likely has a 21 pin socket in it. And the nice thing about the 21 pin socket is there just are more pins there so that you can get more functions out of that. Uh, the new uh, Bowser locomotives, True Line Train and Rapido locomotives and River Point Station locomotives will be coming with a, as far as I know, this is their decision, not mine, but uh, you know, things may change, but they should be coming with a 21 pin board and an 8 pin socket. So that way, if you buy the engine without sound, I'm not going to force. I, I, I told these companies that I don't want to provide a, a non-sound decoder. Uh, there are companies out there that do a, a non-sound decoder and a sound decoder version, and that's all. No non-DCC decoders anymore. Um, that frustrates me as an end user because everybody as an end user has their own opinions and, and favorite decoders to use. And if you're forcing them to use a specific brand of decoder, they, that might not be what they want. Um, you know, and if it's a, a brand, maybe they don't like our sound for, for whatever reason. Um, you know, I won't hold that against them. I don't know why, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why they wouldn't want it. But, uh, but maybe they don't want our sound. So maybe they want to buy a non-sound engine and put somebody else's sound into it. Um, that's fine. Uh, by by providing an 8-pin and a 21-pin board, they can still do that. They're not forced to buy a 21-pin decoder because they're not as common on the market. Um, this was a, a type of board that in Europe, uh, they did the same thing. It, it started having 8 and 21 pins when that 21-pin plug became available. Nowadays, you don't see the 8-pin plug in Europe hardly at all anymore. Um, it's It's kind of the obsolete plug because... Uh, it's just limited. You only have those three function outputs. It's bulky. Um, you know, it's um, you know, it's just it's, it's a little archaic. The the 21 pin um, is attached to the board. There's no wires. It just kind of fits right into place. Um, your speaker wires go right through that plug as well. So there's not even any speaker wires through the board. It's just a much easier board to deal with. Um, there's new ones in Europe that are used now, something called a Plux uh, type of decoder plug. Uh, there's something called a Next 18 plug. Um, they all have their benefits and they all have their disadvantages. But the the standard, well, what we know uh, at ESU, we know it as the standard 21-pin plug. That is the most common type of plug that we sell on our decoders. Um, again, mainly in Europe, but uh, it's something that's starting to take off here in the States as well. And I, I think you'll see as more and more companies start to use it, uh, more decoder manufacturers will make a 21-pin variant of their decoders as well. Some already do. I know TCS does make a 21-pin. I want to say Digitrax does, but I, I can't guarantee that. I, I don't know what everybody makes, but I know there are some available, so you, know, you can still use your favorite decoder with these engines that are coming. So. Okay. Now, the website for you guys is uh, www.esu.eu? 
you can get to our website that way. I usually recommend people go to www.loksound.com, L-O-K-S-O-U-N-D, and that will take you right to the English portion of our website. Um, if you go to uh, uh, esu.eu, that takes you to the German section. There is an American flag right at the top of that page. If you press that, it'll take you directly to the English side of our site as well. So. Okay. All right. Yeah, because I had just put in, I'd Googled ESU LLC. Okay. That's thing I'd like to mention there. Um, you know, of course, our website is a wealth of information. All of our sound files are there for free download. Um, our programming software is also there for free download. Um, you can, you know, the our programmer uh, it lists price for about 200 bucks. It's it's a little on the pricey side as well, but uh, it, it is so versatile and can be used to do so many things that it quickly becomes worth it. But I I usually recommend that a couple guys go together and buy one or, or buy one for a club or something along those lines. Most of your dealers do have them. Um, but that software that's on the website can be downloaded for free. So if you just want to try it out and see how you like the layout and, and all that, uh, that can be downloaded and tried without putting any expense down. Uh, the other thing that's right on the front page of our website, uh, towards the bottom of the page there's a uh, sign-up uh, column there for our uh, newsletter, for our ESU newsletter called The Sound Bite. Uh, that will mm -hmm. be uh, coming out here in a couple weeks, the next version of it. So. Um, we also have a, a link there to go to our Facebook page and sign up there. I do try to keep fairly active on both of those to let people know what's coming, uh, you know, uh, what sounds are coming next, uh, you know, what engines might be coming out on the OEM side soon that are going to have our sound in it. And, um, you know, it also gives people to give us a little bit of feedback as well and, you know, maybe what you know, they'd like to see what we're doing well at. Uh, uh, we also have a user form right on our website as well that can give you answers to questions on the support side or maybe they want to share a video or some pictures of something that they're working on. That's that's available as well. Um, and there's there's plenty of Yahoo groups and uh, forums out there devoted to Loke Sound as well. So, uh, okay. Lots of ability. Now, you, you also have speakers. We do. Uh, we have a fairly vast line of speakers in, in multiple sizes. Uh, because our decoders are rated for 4 ohms, most of the speakers that we have are 4 ohm speakers. We do have a new mm -hmm. speaker available uh, that is a 16 by 35 millimeter speaker with an enclosure. Uh, that retails for just under 10 bucks with the enclosure. Uh, that is an 8 ohm speaker, so that would work for our decoders and anybody else's out there that uses an 8 ohm speaker. One of the things that I do want to stress, though, is that decoders that are not rated for 4 ohms uh, should not try to use a 4 ohm speaker. Um, if it's rated for 4, you can always go higher. You can go to 8, you can go to 16 ohms. If it's only rated for 8 ohms, though, you should only stick with 8, 16, or I guess you could use 32 ohms, but you lose a little volume and depth with that. Um, the same as if I were to try to use a 2-ohm speaker on our decoder, it could cause some damage. So um, you, you just want to be sure you're not using those 4-ohm speakers on, on other decoders that aren't rated such. So. Okay. Yeah, you've got a, a variety of shapes and sizes here on your uh, your website. We 
we do. Um, anything from uh, as small as a, a 12 millimeter by 14 millimeter square, which is coming out shortly, uh, that's a self-adhesive uh, speaker. So uh, no chambers needed for that one. It actually uses the locomotive shell as your chamber, uh, mm-hmm. up, all the way up to uh, speakers for for large scale, um, you know, up to a couple inches around. So. Uh, there's just about everything there that that you would need, depending on uh, whatever it is you're trying to put sound in. Now, what is the this curiosity question? But I look at your five zero three twenty seven and then your five zero three twenty eight, which are twin speakers. And what's the benefit of that over like a five zero three three zero, which is a traditional? Just a single speaker in an enclosure. What's the dual do for you? Um, it's it's really a matter of opinion. <laughs> okay. This is kind of one of those. Well, <laughs> uh, the uh, the dual speakers can be nice because they're a little smaller in some cases. Um, you can you can take them out of that enclosure and you can spread them out so you can get an illusion of some stereo sound. Um, stereo sound when you get into that small can be well, I don't want to downplay some of that. There is a manufacturer out there that's actually doing stereo sound right now, and and some of the things that can be done with that are, are quite good. So I, I'm not picking on that at all, but what I'm finding is that true stereo sound, to hear it in stereo, um, it's not as feasible uh, in HO scale or smaller. Once you get into the larger scales, that becomes quite nice, but... Uh, Having the dual speakers uh, does kind of give you that effect of having some stereo. Um, you can, again, you can spread things out a little bit. But what I see the, the two round speakers being used for a lot are in end scale. Um, they're used in uh, um, the, uh, I've seen them used under the stacks of steam engines so you can get them into a smaller space and put the sound where yeah. it belongs. So you don't have steam engines running with the sound in the tender and nothing coming out of the stacks. So, um, there's there's a lot of uh, features that can be accomplished by, by using the smaller speakers. Um, again, they're four-ohm speakers, so they're a little bit louder than what you find in the same size in eight-ohms. The other thing that we find is that round speakers traditionally give better sound than a rectangular speaker or an oval speaker. Uh, Okay. You know, that's one of the reasons that we go with the twin speakers rather than, than a single speaker. Uh, you do want to be careful when wiring two speakers, though, that they're not uh, in phase or they'll cancel each other out. So, um, you know, when you're wiring, you know, make sure you're following directions as to how to wire, you know, from negative to positive and, and things like that. There are multiple ways of doing that, um, you know, wiring in series or wiring in parallel. And depending on the ohms and the rating of your speakers, there's there's different ways to do it in different situations. So um, that's something that you want to research for the individual product or project that you're working on. And one thing I can't stress enough is that every project is different. Um, a speaker that sounds phenomenal in one project may sound completely different in another, depending on the shell, depending on your uh, the cavity, your sound enclosures. The rule of thumb is the bigger the speaker, the rounder the speaker, the better. And always use an enclosure. Um, you know, not every project is going to lend itself to using a huge speaker, though. So some games need to be played sometimes. Um, 
Another thing that I have found just in my own installations, um, having open grill work isn't always a good thing. Uh, a lot of people think that, you know, you need to have that all that open grill work for sound to escape. And it's it's a little deceiving because in a sense that's true, the sound does need to escape to a degree. But if you have all that open grill work, sound is all built or based on sound pressure, air pressure. So if you have all that open grill work, the air pressure can't build up inside that shell and you'll lose a lot of your base. Uh, it'll sound kind of hollow, maybe a little tinny. If you enclose a lot of that open grill work, you'll actually usually get a little better sound out of it. Um, the uh, One of the ways to do that that I've found is take a piece of clear masking tape and put that on the inside. That still gives you the illusion of being able to see through the grill work, but it closes off that air chamber. So it uh, just is able to give you a better sound in, in many cases. But always tr experiment a little bit when you're putting your speakers in because... Uh, again, every installation is a little different. So where that method works well in one case, uh, it, there's exceptions to that rule in other cases. And one in particular is the Cato engines. The Cato engines use a, a 28 millimeter speaker in the fuel tank, and um, that gives one of the best sounds that I've heard. If you take that exact same speaker with the exact same file loaded and you put it inside the shell, you yeah. tend to lose a little bit. So um, you know, and that goes against what I was just saying with open grill work. <laughs> so, um, not really sure why it sounds so good in the Cato engines, but it, it definitely does. Um, another little hint that we found in working with Cato is that a lot of people don't like to put speakers in the fuel tanks because a speaker has a magnet, and a magnet will pick up any filings or or metal on the track. Um, I've ruined a number of speakers by uh, not running. Uh, my magnet car around the layout before an operating session uh, and it picks up a nail and punctures a speaker or, or something along those lines. If you're finding that, you know, you didn't puncture the speaker, but over time you'll start to lose some volume on the speaker, typically what is going on there is that, you know, it has picked up some filings and what they're doing is they're pressing between the diaphragm and the magnet itself. So they're holding that diaphragm in place that's not able to reverberate as much. So don't take a cloth or um, you know, your finger or anything else to try to rub that off. If you do, most likely you're going to damage the speaker. The best tool for that mm -hmm. job is to take a piece of tape and, and press against it lightly and pull those filings off. Um, the, the tape will adhere to those filings without scratching the surface or puncturing the surface of the, of the diaphragm of the speakers. So. Um, that that one's a freebie. That doesn't matter what decoder you're using or what brand. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I know one of the guys at the uh, the club made a magnet car out of old speakers. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that had been run for whatever reason. He just mounted them upside down on a box car. Yep. And. Uh, runs it around with his cleaning car and it picks up all kinds of crap off of the track. One of the, uh, right. the, the best cars, I've, I've made a number of different magnet cars. One of the best ones i found is a well car. Uh, by putting the magnets inside of a container and then putting that down, a well car is very, very close to the track. So um, it gets the magnet that much closer to anything that it might try to pick up. So, uh, yeah, okay. All right. Well, golly, 
We've been at this for well over an hour. <laughs> well, I can so, be a little long-winded, so I apologize for that. <laughs> ah, no, not at all. Not at all. Like you say, the, the purpose is to uh, get the word out for people who may not be as familiar with ESU and their products as, as we would like them to be. So I sure appreciate your time today. No problem. Is there, is there anything else that uh, you wanted to add in? Well, just just in closing, I I, I think uh, one of the things that that makes me different um, as a well as a manufacturer, and and I want to say different because I'm not saying that other companies don't have some of these benefits, but I am a model railroader. I am an absolute train enthusiast, and I'm not out there to try to make a killing in this industry. Um, I, because I am a model railroader, I strive to try to make the product better as much for my own use as, as for yours. So I'm not really out there looking for customers as much as I am out there looking for friends and comrades in the, in the, uh, uh, in the hobby. Um, so, you know, that being said, you know, please, if you've got questions, uh, concerns about anything, contact me. If there's something that I can do to, to make the product better, to make your experience with the product better, let me know. Because uh, that's that's what I'm really out here doing. I'm, I'm this isn't my company. I don't run it. Um, or I mean, I, I do run it, but I don't own it. So, um, you know, I'm I'm not trying to push to to make a buck at it. I mean, of course, you know, we've got to eat at the end of the day and all that. But I don't want. Mm-hmm. And I, and again, I'm not downplaying anybody else uh, in the industry that's that's not ex- at all what i mean by this but i'm i'm saying more that uh, i'm one of you guys and i want to see not only this company do well but i want to see the industry do well and i think we all have to work together you know there's this industry is too small to create a whole bunch of competitors amongst one another or whatever i think we all can complement each other and how we how we work and um you know we're all good friends in this industry i've got great friends at soundtracks um you know i've got great friends at, at you know Digitracks and you know and nce and all these other companies um you know sure we we're all trying to make some of the same products but you know i think the competition that we have out there is is good it keeps us all honest it keeps us all striving to do stuff that's better um you know i don't want to see personally one company you know only having their products in in locomotives or and whatever uh, i'd like to see the variety you know you it gets become it becomes a little monotonous um if you have i mentioned before uh, if you have six f units sitting side by side they're not all going to sound the same, uh, and you wouldn't expect them to sound the same. Some of them have different degrees of use and uh, wear and tear and different horns or, or whatever. Um, you know, don't just use one brand. Use them, use them all. Add a little variety. Um, it'll make your layout a lot better. So. That's an excellent point, an excellent point. Uh, increase the realism by a uh, selection of different uh Interpretations of the the same thing. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Very and good. If, uh, if there if there's any concern or questions, uh, contact me. Um, you know, there's contact information on our website, but 
I can be reached, uh, you know, Monday through Friday at uh, 570-649-5048. If it's a, a technical question or service question, um, I do limit my days to Monday, Wednesday, and Friday uh, for those technical questions. Um, but if, you know, if you have a suggestion or something like that, call any time for sure. Um, it is only myself and my wife in the office here, so uh, due to traveling and recording and things like that, I, I have had to limit my service days. Um, but, you know, I do handle the servicing here. I don't, you know, forward all emails to Germany or anything like that. Every, there is service in the States, and it's, it's available from 9 to 5 Eastern Standard Time on those days uh, for sure. Um, so contact me, um, shoot me an email, uh, ask me questions. That's available at any time. Um, I answer serviced emails as much as anything else every day of the week, including Saturday and Sunday. So, and any time of the day. I know sometimes, you know, this is a global economy now. And again, I, you know, I'm in charge of Australia as well. So, uh, you know, I'm available a lot of times of the day, you know, especially when it comes to emails. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that's not dependent on any any time zone, so please send it. You know, it's also free. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. People, take him up on it. Inundate him with uh, with emails. Ask questions. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Matt, thank you very much for your time. Okay. And listeners, I hope you've enjoyed uh, today's program, and we'll see you again. <laughs>